0: Let's have a look now at Galatians together. Really well introduced already for us by Paul. And it sounds like you've been doing um, some good work as you look week by week at keeping continuity, even with different preachers um, week by week, at trying to have a view of the whole, which is really great. Because Galatians is very much a book that does hang together as a whole. It's not one of those Bible books where each section may be like a psalm, one at a time. You can look at different psalms. Galatians is is one big argument and it has a lot of themes that repeat throughout it again and again and again. Uh, They're often um, this versus that, as we've already been talking about this morning. Flesh versus spirit, works versus faith, law versus promise, Old Testament versus New Testament, Moses versus Abraham, These this versus that, this or that, not this but that, those kinds of things. It's, It's written to Christians who are in turmoil. Um, In in the first century, a really big issue was, if you're a Christian, what does it mean about your relationship to being Jewish and the the whole Jewish Bible? You know, Jesus himself was a Jew and and saw the Jewish Bible as scripture. So if you're a Christian, are you now a super Jew? Should you be more Jewish than Jewish? Should you be deeply embedded in all the Jewish traditions and rituals and and priestcraft and clean and unclean food? Is is that central to, to Christian if you're a Christian Jew, are you sort of a, a kind of better Christian? That we sort of have, there's all the, all the Christians, but the front row, please, for the Jewish Christians. Or, <laughs> this, as the, the gospel began to spread throughout the Roman world, sometimes the opposite happened. And so some people thought, well, I'm a not Jewish Christian. I became a Christian from another background. And so maybe I'm the super Christian. I'm not bogged down in that stuff. From the past, that old stuff, I've got the new updated model. I'm not Nokia, I'm Apple. You know, this kind of way of thinking about it. (laughs) But people are strange because then what ended up seeming to have happened here for the Galatians is some of the ones who were not from Jewish backgrounds strangely began to say, actually, maybe I should adopt all of the all of the Jewish traditions and rituals and, and actually maybe that's a little bit like, you know, sometimes a kid who's a wild one in their teens or their 20s, when they find their way back from a time of rebellion and wild living, sometimes they become the most conservative of all. Sometimes, you know how they, that can be a tendency at times? That you, you, you've seen what it's like out there, and so when you come back, you might become stricter still um, than, than even the people who never left. So there's all of this chaos going on that they're called by the Paul. He writes to them and says, it's like you guys have been bewitched. Someone's cast a spell over you. You're in vision, and, and you're not seeing things clearly. Um, uh, that's their issues and, and we'll be following the discussion that helps them. But as we listen in on that discussion, it does help us with different issues we have today. So here in 2023, some of you may have come from backgrounds um, or or know people in in Christian um, groups that are having the same conversation. Groups like Mormons or um, uh, Roman Catholic or Seventh-day Adventist or even the modern new perspective on Paul. A range of these different Christian groups are asking questions about how Jewish ought we be. Yeah, so, so we have our own modern versions of these questions. And we might be talking to those who aren't Christians, who have is the sceptic who has accusations about Christianity because of the Old Testament. What about this law? What about that law? What about the death penalty here? You know, how can you take the Bible seriously if you're not going to be obeying all its rules about sowing seed and wearing garments and eating shellfish? And if you don't obey all the rules, then you shouldn't obey any of them. So we've got different issues with the Old Testament to the Galatians. But as we follow along today and and, and during this whole teaching series, we'll hear the answer to those first century questions. We'll get some answers to our 21st century questions. And as Paul already introduced, we'll be also reminded of the gospel of grace itself. That is good news to be reminded of. Even if we don't have any of those, <laughs> those other questions. You know, listening in on these other issues, the answer comes back to Jesus. And that stuff is helpful um, as well. So Paul answers the question throughout Galatians like um, uh, Paul Scott just hinted at in a range of ways in the letter. Personal authority, personal experience, narrative examples, theology, pastoral appeal. That's what he does in chapter 4. Later on in chapter 4, he appeals to them personally in a pastoral way as as one of the, the evangelists, church planters, talking with them. Today, the argument is a historical one. Did you notice that? So today, the particular way he deals with their issues is historical. Verse 15, Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. Verse 17, what I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years after Abraham does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. It's a this happened, then this happened, and eventually that happened argument. It's a history argument that we're looking at today. Uh, that's part of how you need to talk with an atheist who's spent too much time on Reddit or some other online forum coming up with gotcha verses, is that often what the atheist doesn't know is how the whole Bible hangs together. They don't know the, the history of the Bible. And so they go, ha ha, gotcha, with a single verse. And you're left saying, oh. in order for you to understand why that's a silly gotcha, you really need to understand how the Bible fits together as a story. You need to spend some time in Galatians or Hebrews. You need to do the Bible project a little. And if you did that a little, you'd realise your gotcha hasn't embarrassed me. It's embarrassed you that you think it's a really good gotcha. (laughs) Once you put the Bible in its historical flow, certain answers get solved. Certain questions get solved. The Bible is, is not like a... Uh, like a cyclical view of history, like in a myth. And it's definitely not a chaotic view of history. It's all meaningless, is it? Instead, it's a building story, beginning with creation, promise, fulfillment, and, and then finally, J- Jesus' return, creation to new creation, what people call salvation history. That's what we're looking at salvation history. And as we talk with other people, other Christian groups, or skeptics, Or as you evangelize someone from Thailand or mainland China or deepest, darkest, atheistic Hobart who doesn't know much about Christianity at all, often building up that salvation history is really important for them to understand how Christianity hangs together. History uh, explains a lot of our understanding and helps us resolve some of those tensions flesh and spirit, law and grace, Old and New Testaments, this age and the age to come, and doing the salvation history. Actually, doing that salvation history thing we'll be doing today helps us with other questions that Christians get in a knot about. It's a big part of the answer to to how does Christ relate to culture? How does church relate to the state? How does gospel work and secular work relate? Um... A lot of these things, actually, part of the answer is, is getting your, your biblical history clear. Your sense of the flow of time in God's purposes. That's what we're looking at today. Heading number one, then. In, in this historical argument, Paul makes a first point, a historical point. The promise comes first. The promise comes first. The priority of the promise is the first thing we'll notice that Paul says. Yeah? The promise comes before the law. Last last week you would have looked at verses 11 and 12, these two ways, a righteousness by the law, the righteous will live by faith, verse 11, and then the righteousness by faith, uh, sorry, the uh, the man who does these things will live by them, verse 12, and the righteous by faith, verse 11. These two ways, the righteous will live by faith, or the man who does these things will live by them which which one is has the priority which one is superior well here God through his apostle answers the question by saying what comes first and and the answer is the promise verse 15. let me take an example he says from everyday life you can't set aside a contract a human covenant once it's been established so it is here the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed and what I mean is this the law verse 17 introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. The promise was first. The promise was established first. The promise can't be set aside. Yeah? What has priority? The promise to Abraham has priority. He sets up here as well language of inheritance. Throughout this section, inheritance and promise are used together. And they set us up for this idea of sons of God, heirs of God later on in the passage. So the promise comes first and the promise is by faith. I mean, that's the nature of a promise. If I promise something to you, what should you do? Say thanks. I promise you I'll give you ice cream. Thanks. (laughs) I I promise I'll give you the If if the person is trustworthy, you believe them. If if you're not sure, you might say, prove it. (laughs) Are you sure? You know, you, you might... Test the promise, but if a promise giver is trustworthy, then your response is to receive, it's to trust, it's to say thanks, to, to accept. It's one directional, a promise is unilateral, from God to Abraham. I will, Abraham believed. Verse 18, for if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. The New Testament is very strong on this point. It says, if it's a promise, if it's by grace, then it can't be by doing, it can't be by law. The New Testament is less sophisticated, if you like, than, say, traditional Roman Catholic theology, which says, oh yes, it's by grace, and here's the things you need to do by grace. Kind of adding together grace and works. The New Testament is not that complicated. It says, no, 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 if it's by grace, it can't be by works. If it's by promise, it can't be by doing. It's not a here you go if, it's here you go. If it's by law, it's not a promise. If it's by works, it's not by grace, verse 18. No, it's a by faith, a promise not by law, but by faith. The promise comes before the law, the promise is by faith. And so, according to Paul, the promise dominates. The promise dominates. It's it's the prior, it's the superior. Verse 19. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred to had come. See that? What's the purpose of the law compared to the promise? Here's the promise. And then the law was added for a reason and a little while the law is qualified by the promise it's it's qualified in purpose and in time by the promise the law comes later it is added on it is a widget a similar thing you find in Romans 5 verse 21 so what's Paul's point well just like like last week we saw in verses 6 to 9 he's saying Christianity that salvation is by believing the gracious promise of God. That, that core of Christianity, that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the gracious promise of God. That is ancient. That's his point. It is primitive. It is pre-Christian, uh, pre-Jesus. It is pre-Moses. It goes right back to Abraham, the father of, of, of the, the, the faith. It's paleo-religion. Salvation by faith alone is as old as biblical religion itself. It's more Jewish than the Judaizers. In doing this, what Paul is, is doing is, is basically putting the Bible back in chronological order, back in, back in shape. It's as if what the, the law-focused teachers were doing were kind of getting this little bit in here, you know, with, from halfway through Exodus, right through to bits of Deuteronomy, and just kind of pulling that out. And maybe making it all red leather. <laughs> and then putting it in the centre at the beginning at the end. And saying, oh, look, the key to it all is this bit here. The, the, the covenant with Moses. And what Paul is doing is reinstating this bit beforehand. Creation, fall, Noah, covenant, promises to Abraham. All the stories about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph. And then all of this other stuff that then builds on that. And talks about the failures to keep the law and the promises to come. And the prophets... He's putting, he's putting their Bibles back together. So that they can see that the promise is primary, is prior, uh, is now here. Now in all of that, I've jumped over an odd verse. Did you stumble on verse 16 as we were going through the reading? It's a strange one if you pause and think about it for a second. Um, verse 16 the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Now, wait, what? It's, it's an odd argument when you read it, often in some of our English translations attempting to explain it. Um, like we get the point... Uh, uh, Jesus fulfills the promise, like in verse 19, like in verse 24, like in chapter 4, verse 4. We get the point, but we don't get how he got there. It's like in a maths, you might get your teacher, actually you get the right answer in your maths problem, but you get a bad mark because when the teacher looks at your working, (laughs) your workings are wrong. You accidentally got the right answer. Um, we, We feel a bit like that going, okay, yeah, Jesus fulfills the promise to Abraham, I'm with you on that, but you're working, and to seeds, and to... The the reason it's confusing is because seed, or or offspring would be perhaps a more common translation. Offspring already refers to groups. You don't say, and to your seeds, and to your offsprings, any more than you say, and to your sheeps, and to your fishes, and to your children's... It's, it's already a group. Offspring already means lots. Yeah. So what, what's the point? It doesn't say, and to your seeds. Well, of course it doesn't, because that's bad grammar. <laughs> this is where I think the English Standard Version has helped us trying to capture the thought from the Greek. Um, where where in, in the NIV we have, he didn't say, and to your seeds, meaning many people, The ESV is a bit more helpful in saying he doesn't say, and to your seeds, meaning many offsprings. Many offsprings, what's that trying to capture? Many groups of offspring, many separate lineages of descendants. That's the thought it's capturing. God didn't say, I will give this promise to Abraham and to your offsprings. That is, to Ishmael and to Isaac and to Esau and to Jacob and to... No, no, it's and to a line an offspring, a lineage. Now when you hear that, if you're used to the Bible history, you go, oh, of course, that makes heaps of sense. Because you know how much the Bible is about tracing a lineage. Not lineages, but particularly a lineage. Through all the genealogies and begat this and begat that and begat the other, you're always looking to pick through a lineage that ends up where? Matthew chapter 1. Begat Jesus, the Son of God the Messiah. The promise wasn't made to Abraham and all the possible lineages that came out from him and the cousins and the cousins once removed no no it came from one lineage that in the end where does it come up where does it end Christ that's the point that this promise ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus so verse 19 so verse 24 so for verse 4. God didn't come first with laws and say here's what we'll do and then when the laws didn't work said all right let's scrap that let's try promises now God came first with promise he said I will and that promise has now come in Christ and anything that happened in between in the history is on the way to the fulfillment of the promise. Build your theology around your redemptive history in that one big line. And when you do that, you won't add to the promise. You won't set aside the promise. You won't undermine the promise and the grace. You'll see everything else, including the circumcision and the food laws and the temple and the priests and the, the whole structure of the, uh, the the state of Israel as just working on their way to now. You will, in other words, read all scripture as Promise scripture. All scripture as Christian scripture. And then the little end of the passage to clarify. Sometimes questions clarify. I know working with uni students, one of the best forms of teaching is the Q&A times. You do your sermon and your Bible study, but then you have a panel of Q&A time and often that's when a a new understanding comes because you realise someone had a... An assumption that was a bit off, or just didn't know what a word meant, <laughs> and they're brave enough to ask, and then you go, oh, and the lights come on. And they go, oh, now I get it. Um, uh, so here we get these questions get asked, and, and perhaps there that bit where the Galatians suddenly went, ah, now I see. Let's listen in. Let's listen on these questions. Question number one So then, what was the point of the law through Moses? If God's about promise, not law, why law? Verse 19. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred to had come. It was added. It was not central. It was uh, auxiliary. It was added so it could be taken away. It was there for a particular reason. It means, actually, that if you were an Old Testament believer, you were both under law and under grace. It's possible to look at your life two ways. Delighting in the law of God as the promise of God that points to the gospel and feeling a burden of the law that reminds you of your sin and your need for the gospel. You're both a son, to use chapter 4's language, and a son still like a slave because you haven't reached majority yet. Yeah? Yeah? So the law was added for a time because of transgressions, he says. What does that mean, because of transgressions? Could mean a few things. Maybe it means all of them. Sometimes that can be the case that you're referring to a few things. It could mean it was added to like our laws today. You have laws to stop worse things happening. You know, anarchy is a terrible thing for a country. Some laws give some stability. Could be that. Probably not the main point here. It could be the law was given to stir up rebellion against God. That's that Romans 7 argument to kind of almost provoke sin to show us how sinful we are. Could be, but not, maybe not such an emphasis in Galatians. More likely, I suspect, is, is that it was given to uh, show guilt for what it is. To convict of guilt, a bit like Romans 3, to expose sin. The clue is this word Transgression. Transgression, you know, there's all these religious words for being bad, right? There's being bad, there's sin, there's uncleanness or ungodliness or unholiness. They all have a different feel to them. What does transgression imply? It's the idea of kind of trespassing, if you like. It's stepping across a boundary. It's a deliberate breaking of a rule, yeah? It's tempting sometimes. There's nothing that makes you want to step on the grass quite so much as a sign that says, do not step on the grass. You don't even think about licking something until you say a sign that says, do not lick. Um, it's that, that the idea of going, when I, when I bre- step across that boundary, I'm explicitly breaking a rule. I think that's the idea here to say the law came to make clear, explicit, formal, uh, precise the breaking of a rule, yeah, convicting of guilt by showing that when God commands, sinful humans rebel. Romans four fifteen in the N uh, E B, the New English Bible, puts it as to make wrongdoing a legal offense, to make sinful people guilty of explicitly breaking God's law, and so verse twenty two. The law comes to a people who then verse 22 are prisoners of sin we're aware that actually that's true of all of us the whole world are prisoners of sin until the seed comes just for time in a historical season preparing the way then for when jesus arrives and brings the fullness of salvation there's another little weird verse there in verse 20 It talks about um, uh, the law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, doesn't represent just one party, but God is one. I think the point there is just to say the law, unlike a promise, was two-way. The the lawgiver and the obliged obeyers. There was a two-way thing. That's what mediators do. They represent two parties. Whereas God is one. God is best represented by grace by promise god gives when there's nothing god creates when there's nothing god saves with nothing we do god as one uh, when he works in his most god-like fashion needs no mediators needs no second parties to come to the table second question does the law contradict the promise verse 21 is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Is there two rival religions in our Bibles fighting it out <laughs> against each other? Was God wasting his time? Was he lying when he said this law stuff mattered? Did God contradict himself? <laughs> no, 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 the answer comes. No. Um, if a law could have worked, God would have used a law, sure. Like it's, not that, it's not that God was saying, oh, if you obey, I'll bless you. Um, And as if that wasn't true. If they could have obeyed. He would have blessed them. We see that in Jesus. True God but also true man. He obeyed. And even through taking the punishment for our sin. He was blessed in the resurrection wasn't he? So it's not that the law isn't true. (laughs) It's just that we can't keep it. Just as with Adam and Eve. If they had faithfully continued in God's way. They would have enjoyed the goodness of the garden. Yeah. It's not that obedience is not a good thing or that blessing from obedience is not a true thing. As 3 verse 12 puts it, there is a technical possibility. If you do all these things, you'll live by them. Yes. No, God's not contradicting himself. He's simply showing what is already true and showing us we need something greater, a greater salvation. Verse 22 The scripture declares the whole world is prisoners of sin. So that what was promised being given through faith in jesus christ might be given to those who believe that we need something that comes by faith and if it comes by faith it can be given to anybody the law can't justify because we're bound by sin sin cripples us from ever being able to be right through law keeping the law mean, uh, becomes a means of showing us our sin even the mechanics of forgiveness in the old testament that the sacrifices a kind of a reminder of sin because we need to keep making the sacrifices that's what the Bible book of Hebrews says the law can't meet our need on its own only the promise can and the law points us that way so the too long don't read verse 23 if you miss if you tuned out if <laughs> I lost your way I talked too fast here's the summary verse 23 before this faith came we were held prisoners by the law locked up until faith should be revealed so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ so we might be justified by faith and now that faith has come we are no longer under the supervision of the law the law was there to show us our sin the law was there to prepare us for when Christ has come now that Christ has come the law is no longer needed it has reached a fulfillment in a new way And so we have the freedom of sonship. Verse 26. That's our final point as we come to a close. What does this all, history? Let's now arrive at the fulfillment of history in Jesus. What does it mean? Verse 26, 326. You are all, Paul says, to the Jews and to the Gentiles, to the Gentiles who've become a bit more Jewish since their conversion, and the Jews who are boasting in their Jewishness, and a the, the whole lot of them. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you, who are baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. All children of Abraham. And as children of Abraham, you are all adopted children of God. Inheritors of the full promises of God. That's why sons of God, even though it's a masculine only word has something nice when used to refer to believers male and female because it captures at least in that historical setting the heir the firstborn son inherits in that sense male and female together male female and eunuch all together are heirs equally in Christ Jesus yeah that's the kind of idea we all equally stand beside our older brother Jesus sharing in the inheritance Verse 27 describes um, the Christian life in a different way. Verse 27, we have been clothed with Christ. There's two ways you can talk about our close relationship with Jesus. Jesus in us, that's a lot of Galatians, or we are in Jesus. This is more that later one that he, he comes to dwell within us and so all he is is with us. But you could also say we come to dwell in him, clothe ourselves in all he is we share in. Two ways of describing the same thing. And that means that when it comes to our relationship with God, our spiritual privileges and dignities and hope and security, there's no difference in our ethnicity, in our religious heritage, in our economic status, in our degree of freedom, in our nationality, in our visa status, in our sex, in our gender, in what we've done, in who we are, how much we earn, we're all one in Christ Jesus whether adopted or a a biological children of our parents whether whatever distinction you might say whether healthy or sick whether fast or slow all one in Christ Jesus it's awesome now these verses uh let's get political for a second these verses don't don't mean that there are no distinctions that of any kind in this life still yeah so Uh, It's not as if these, these verses mean that there's still no need to figure out how to make family life work, husband and wife and children. There still are social distinctions between the sexes and age in family life. Nor does it mean that somehow equality means that we never pay attention to minority groups in our society, like, for example, the Indigenous Australians. It's not as if we say because we're all one, That therefore we should never treat particular groups with a certain degree of special privilege. Paul did that with the Jews in Romans. Even though he spends all of Galatians and all of Romans saying Jews and Gentiles are equal. Go and read Romans 15 where they collect money for the poor in Jerusalem. And he says you owe it to them because they were here first. Humanly speaking they had the the Gospels and the Covenant before you Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? On a human level, there's an ethnic priority to the Jews that the Gentiles honor. You see it in Acts 6 when the non-Hebrew-speak, or not Aramaic, um, Christians, their widows were kind of being skipped over. What did the church do? It appointed Greek-speaking deacons to be in charge of caring for the widows. Now I'm not telling you how to vote in the referendum but I am suggesting that it's not against the principle of oneness in Christ to actually say because we're all one how can we care for those who are disenfranchised? Do you see what I mean? Because we're all one let's pay attention to make sure we treat each other and and lift each other up. Yeah. So it's worth bearing in mind that how we apply this doesn't mean flat equality it may be proactive concern for the slave, for the female, for the Gentile, and so on. Yeah? That as we work this out in practice, we reach beyond the inequalities in society to do good and to bless, to bring the gospel. For we are all one in Christ. All those differences of circumstance, experience, responsibilities uh, are secondary compared to our shared dignity and creation and the grace God lavishes on us equally In Jesus Christ let me bring to close then as we speak not so much about political matters but but matters of the heart a lot of what Paul is saying here is that the Christian life must be built on the gospel and on Christ built on the confidence of of the gospel and of Christ And so easily what we do as as Christians can be to shift sideways to look to other things for the real source of power. It can be so easy to do that we begin with Christ and we may not go on to the Jewish rules and regulations. But you know what sometimes as weird as it is self-help stuff which is genuinely helpful can almost become so passionately important to someone that that's their real gospel. What really makes their hearts sing is the thing that helped them in a practical sense. And, and, and so we can, or, or a, a religious habit, uh, you know, whether it's some people will say, oh, your communion every week is the best thing you could, you know, that's the real thing. Or fasting, let me tell you about ever since I started fasting. Or here's this particular spiritual discipline, silence or tongues or whatever. And, and that becomes their gospel, the real source of their power. Sometimes it is tradition, you know, I, I used to go to Hope Church and it was all very casual but I now go to this other church which is much more holy. And now I've got a new power from the holiness of the, the liturgy. You know, we have it in different ways. There's different things we can look to as, as being a source of power. Sometimes younger Christians look to the, the genuine insights of like um, Kind of critical theories and analysis of power. And it's so helpful for them in seeing the world in a fresh way that that can become their gospel we need to liberate people through helping them see the power structures of society (laughs) all of these things can be good can't they the thing is what what is at the center of my faith what is my gospel what is the secret to the christian life what am i putting in that category and too easily liturgies Spiritual disciplines, experiences, uh, self-help, political, sociology. These things can come to fill up that space in our lives. And Galatians says to us, don't graduate from Christ. Don't move on from Christ. In him and in the simple promise that comes by grace is the secret and core of the Christian life. Keep going up to that. Keep building on that. Keep rejoicing in that. Keep going on that trajectory and then other things remain in their proper place let's pray a loving heavenly father you show your love to us in so many ways but most supremely in the love shown to this world in sending your one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life that's the great truth that history points to and that's the great truth around which our church and our life and our faith depends Please help each one of us treasure that uh, and and build our lives around that. And as we understand how the scriptures hold together, help us be able to live out our faith and defend our faith uh, clearer and more truly as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.